Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Our topic today is the death of a mother, integrating personal and professional knowledge, and our guest is David Browning. When David was 13 years old, his mother, Harriet, died after an extended struggle with lung cancer. Like many children who lose parents, the trajectory of his life was then shaped by the impact of that loss. A practicing therapist and educator for 25 years, David has sought to understand what it means to be a professional caregiver when one's own identity has been fashioned by loss. He has published several essays and articles articulating the need for healthcare professionals to better understand the rich intersection between personal experience and professional knowledge. Currently, David is Director of the Initiative for Pediatric Palliative Care at Education Development Center, Inc., a national project aimed at transforming the culture of healthcare for children with life-threatening conditions and their families. Welcome to the show, David. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you on, David, and I was so fortunate um, a few months ago to be able to go to the Initiative for Pediatric Palliative Care that uh, you're the director of, and I certainly want to talk about that a little later on. But first of all, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the loss of your mother. Heidi and I first met you a few years ago um, when we were connecting with Compassionate Friends in Boston, and as a result of that, we read the wonderful article you did about that experience. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you could uh, talk about that a little bit. Sure. Um, uh, my mom died when I was 13 years old um, from lung cancer, and um, uh, that was uh, many years ago now. <laughs> uh, and it uh, was a uh, huge blow to to uh, our family, as it as it as the death of a parent is to to most families. And it also happened at a time when. I think we had probably less awareness and less knowledge than we do now about how grief impacts on families and also particularly on children. Mm-hmm. And you were how old? I was 13. Yeah. And I was the youngest of uh, three boys. Huh. Mm-hmm. And you were pretty close to your mom? I was close to my mom. Um, and uh, as is true, I guess, in a lot of families, children get particularly often closer to mothers, especially in that generation, than with fathers. So the the loss was was um, kind of like other grieving people talk about these kinds of losses. You, you're really not quite sure uh, who you are after a death like that, and you're not quite sure about your own survival after a death like that. Yeah, and especially around thirteen, right, Heidi? What? Yeah, that's a that's a really hard. I would that's a really hard time to lose somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, I know from my own experience working with teenagers, and I also wrote my doctoral dissertation on teenage loss. Mm-hmm. It, you know, kids tend to grieve alone and tend to, you know, grieve mm-hmm. by themselves, and you don't want to be different as a teenager and stand mm-hmm. out and have a non-normative experience mm-hmm. like losing your mm-hmm. mom. And I was wondering, David, was there anything in the hospital, I'm sure there was many things, that could have been done differently to have helped you and, you know, helped your family during that time? You know, it's, it's interesting. In that, in, that, uh, in that time, and I guess this would have been 40, 
42 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, what I recall in the, the times when my mom was in the hospital because she was home most of the, she was sick for about a year before she died, but the times she was in the hospital, I don't recall any, any kind of intervention whatsoever with the family. We just went to visit her. Uh, so um, and so, there was really no intervention at the hospital, and there was no intervention outside of the hospital. It was just families. I think were just supposed to figure out what you do mm-hmm. on your own. Now, uh, what do you see differently about it today? And you're mm-hmm. around the hospitals a lot, and I know you're trying to mm-hmm. make changes. What do you mm-hmm. see? I think in the project that I work on, and 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 in hospitals around the country, there is a gradual but a growing awareness that. When, when children are very sick, much less when they die, um, that, 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 um, that it is the entire family that's, that's affected and that, um, and that hospitals that, especially where in medical settings, because me- hospitals are shaped by medical um, prerogatives and me- medical directives in terms of uh, treating the, the, the medical aspect of things. And um, I think it's only been gradual and with some pressure from various parties, really, that hospitals have begun to see the need to, to, to see the whole child and to see the whole family. And that means having some knowledge and expertise that goes beyond uh, medical expertise in terms of caring and, and staying connected, really, to families. Where's you, the, oh, go ahead, Holly. I was just going to say, you have such a great video, What Matters to Families Knowing Who We Are, mm-hmm. about Rebecca Lilly and her family, and she was a teenager that died of brain cancer, and them talking about how, like you said, David, the whole family is impacted by, by a loss. Right, right, right. Um, yes, and... and um, and I think that um, you know, in, in the in the educational work we do around the country, as as both of you know, we we incorporate family members in in those retreats, so that um, professionals can kind of learn in a different kind of way about how families experience this. Because when when family mem- when families are in the hospital with their child, I mean, there's there's a there's a intense focus on whatever is going on medically with that child at that moment and and we've tried to create an environment where people can step back and sort of understand the entire the entire cultural milieu in which in or cult, uh, context really in which in which in which professionals and family members and kids are coming coming together. Kind of an amazing program because, um, David, as I, as I see it, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but you kind of level the playing field and mm-hmm. try to put uh, family members and everybody on the same mm-hmm. on the same uh, level, a mm-hmm. hierarchy, I guess we call it. And, and family members are experts on their own situation and on mm-hmm. their own loss and on mm-hmm. their own illness. Yes, that's exactly right. And, and it, it sort of links to... to through all of what we're talking about today, that um, we try to create a learning environment where that where it's very clear because we create a level level playing field, as you said, Gloria. It's very clear that the knowledge of family members is is going to be honored, and and the learning is going to be shaped by their knowledge coming in the room just as much as professional knowledge. Um, and then there's a there's the same thing really applies in another way, to professionals that are trying to learn about how to be helpful to families. 
and that is that not only uh, does does the knowledge of family members need to come to the surface, but all the professionals that come to our retreats are also family members, and they may or may not actually be bereaved parents. It's not been unusual for us to have uh, professionals come who have never told other professionals that they are bereaved parents. But even if they're not bereaved parents, they all know something about um, grief from their own lives. And one of the things we really try to break down is the assumption that the best professional knowledge uh, is purely objective knowledge or purely content knowledge, that all professionals, the richness of what they do well uh, with family members has everything to do with their personal experience, which means both the losses that they've experienced with, with, with kids and family members as well as their own personal losses. Wow, that's quite a thing to ask people to tap into their personal experiences, isn't it, Heidi? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and get to that level. Is it, is it a chat? Well, you get people who that come that are interested in it. I would think that in the whole general hospital, it might even be a little more difficult than the retreat. Oh, it it is, and and it's not that we it it, it is difficult, and it's not also that we um, insist that people. Um, do sort of go to that place. It's. I think what we try to do is simply create a learning environment in which the knowledge that might best be brought to bear on how to be helpful to kids and families gets a chance to emerge. Right. And for some, that means because there's safety and permission, it means for some professionals, it means being able to talk about their personal experience uh, in a way that has never been validated by their organization, their healthcare organization before. I mean, healthcare professionals, as you know, are not historically uh, invited, even even setting aside their personal experience of their own losses outside of their professional work. They're not even invited in most healthcare settings to talk about the impact of the losses that come from their professional experience, which is also a, a major kind of a thing that we try to really try to address. From my point of view, it says basically for, for a short thing is that you really had to reconnect with your mother and make a bond with her that would last forever before you could say goodbye to her rather than giving things up. Is it sort of that the gist? Well, and I would agree with everything you said except even the saying goodbye um, I, I think um, I'll, I'll, perhaps Heidi should read it, and I could just respond. But I, I think that we we have concepts of saying goodbye in our culture around grief that are very shaped by by our culture, and and that most grieving people um, do not say goodbye in any kind of final way to their loved ones. They remain connected to them. Very 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 many grieving people remain connected to their loved ones after they die, and our culture doesn't always understand the healthy ways that people do that. I suppose there are also some unhealthy, uh, you know, not-so-positive not so ways that people do that, but there are many healthy ways that people do that. Could you talk a little bit about your mother's uh, death? And I remember, as I remember the article that you wrote about it, um, she kind of turned away from you. <clears throat> well, this the name of the article is Saying Goodbye, Saying Hello, and um, there's... There was a point right before she died. It was really just hours before she died. And you're died 13 years old. When right? she when she turned away, meaning she needed to kind of, I think, get ready to die. And mm-hmm. um, I think that happens in families at a certain point with dying folks that that they 
get to a point sometimes where they're sort of summoning energy for their next passage. Mm-hmm. And do you think they turn away because it's almost too painful? I think that could, could be part of it, but I think mm-hmm. when it happens also towards the very end of life, it's 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 literally an, perhaps an, an energy thing. I mean, mm-hmm. like one, one can't. I mean, one is the, a dying person. I guess is, I suppose is getting ready to is realizing I can't stay here, so I right. need to get ready for what's next. Sort of an energy sense. shift. So yeah. how did you deal with that? What did you think for our audience out there who've had this? I, I imagine for some people it feels rather rejecting. Well, I, um, I, I don't know that it felt rejecting. I think it was, I think it was the point where um, I realized she was leaving. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was the, it, it, for kids. I mean, um, especially when there was no, not much discussion of what was really going on. We kind of knew she, that she was dying, but because it wasn't. I mean, I, there wasn't much open discussion. Plus, even if there had been, as a kid, you you, you sort of you sort of believe it when you see it. You, you believe it when it happens. And mm-hmm. so I think when she finally stopped communicating, stopped being my mom in the way that she'd always been my mom, to talk, by talking with me, then, then I knew that we were losing her. And that was really very close before, very soon before she died. Mm-hmm. So tell me, how does that impact you now? And the, you've gone in, you went into social work, right? Yes. And how did, how did that impact you? Do you think that it did, I should ask? Well, it, it, yes, of course it had, it, of course it had a profound impact on me in general, but, but I think professionally it, um, I'm not sure I was aware in the very early parts of being gravitating towards becoming a clinical social worker and, and, and later a psychotherapist that I'm not sure I was aware that, uh, my mom's death was a big part of that. It became clearer as I became more kind of aware uh, in my 30s and 40s about myself as a young adult and, and middle adult um, that that her death had really um, defined my professional direction uh, because not only did I become a clinical social worker, but surprise, surprise, I gravitated towards uh, working with people around bereavement. And as I started to do that, the, uh, the 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 analogy was unavoidable. It was obvious that that had to do with um, having been a, a, being a, a person that was bereaved and and wanting to um, wanting to help others that were in the same boat. Mm-hmm. And you know what it's like to be a teenager. that's mom is dying. You've had that personal experience, which right. I think on some level is very helpful. Well, this this is really. Part of a lot of the writing I've done has been on this very point, um, Heidi. That um, in in many many folks who go through professional training are are taught uh, about personal experience in a way that tends to uh, keep it in a pejorative or a negative light. Meaning, uh, if you if you're become a, a helping professional and you've got losses in your own life, then your job is to is to is to Resolve those losses so that they don't interfere with being an effective professional. And I would prefer to see that sort of uh, turned upside down. I would prefer us to appreciate that it may be that our the very foundation of our capacity to help comes from our losses, for starters, and that those losses are great assets as long as we are able to become self-aware of them so that they so that they are being used to help our 
our uh, clients and our folks we're trying to help and, and not in a way that's meeting our own needs. Yeah, I, I love yeah. that concept because the bit, when I teach the grief and loss courses at Columbia, I use a lot of your tapes. And there's one that talks, professionals are talking about what their experience is like caring for people that are dying. And my, the biggest question in my class, which is addressed by your, one of your training videos, is from my social work students, is it okay to cry mm-hmm. when a patient is dying right. in front of the family? Because and for some the, reason they think it's not okay. And what's the answer to that, David? Well, the answer to that from from my perspective is that it has to be okay to cry. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, it's particularly helpful if, if, a, if a helping person is overwhelmed by sadness and and can't be in a helping role. But I think what we're learning from the research that, that we've done in our project and that and that has been done in other parts of the health healthcare world is that families uh for the most part seem are, are telling us that the that that when healthcare professionals are engaged and show their authentic feelings around let's say the death of a child um that that's something that is deeply helpful and meaningful for the most part not always but for the most part for families mm-hmm. Now I wanted to ask you, you said there have been some changes in the healthcare system, and what if we've got some people out there who really wish their hospital had done a better job and they're willing to, or their pediatric unit or whatever, or their doctor, and they're willing to, in a, in a kind, loving, um, volunteer way, help out. Do you have any suggestions for them to try to make a change in the system? Um, sure. I, I think that, I think, Many, many hospitals, especially children's hospitals, I'd say probably most at this point, have have programs uh, within the hospital in which family members are um, being utilized in different ways, family advisory boards of different kinds, um, uh, different types of focus groups in which parents are invited in or family members are invited in to give their opinions. Kids are sometimes being invited in to play that similar role in, in children's hospitals. And so for, for folks that really want to be in a position of, um, I don't know, cont- giving something back or, or helping to, to change the system from the family member perspective, I think contacting um, your, your local hospital and, and asking about any programs that utilize family members is probably the best place to start. Uh, we, you know, when we do our educational retreats, we invite, we, we invite teams and we, we encourage those teams to bring family members, um, that, that come from their, their hospitals and, and healthcare settings. This is, there is also, there's also more going on, uh, finally in this country around pediatric hospice because uh, historically most children in our country die in the hospital, in the hospital. Mm-hmm. But, um, because there's some change going on in this area, finally, um, parent, it, you know, parents are being, families are being given some alternative and some options around that and there's much more pressure for, for, for there to be the option for a child to die at home when that's feasible for a family. So, so there are hospice programs as well uh, that um, utilize families as uh, family members as volunteers of various kinds. Yeah, and I know in the state of California right now, there's an initiative to try to, uh, well, they're working on it right now, uh, trying to show that it's cost effective for people to be able to move from kids to move from hospice to hospitals back to hospice with mm-hmm. the same 
with continuity of care, which has not happened in the past. So that's a wonderful place that uh, our audience members, they could check their state and see what's going on and help with those initiatives. I'd like you to give your website mm-hmm. to the audience because it's a wonderful, comprehensive website. Yes. Uh, it's great. It's, do you uh, can you access your videos from there, or can people get a hold of them? Is there uh, there is a way to order 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 videos from the website, um, and just just the website is www.ipcweb.org. And I believe that's on our blog too, isn't it, Heidi? Yeah, I was going to say, if it's not, we need to put the link yeah, on Yeah, if it's not, we'll put the link on the blog. And maybe you, Heidi's got a little comment she's going to read in a few minutes. Maybe we can put that on the blog with it. Do you think, Heidi? Sure, if David doesn't mind. It's no, I don't mind comments. at all. <laughs> no, that'd be great. Okay. <laughs> all right, so Heidi, do you want to start out with yeah, your question? Yeah, so, uh, before break, I was just asking, what is the biggest mistake that healthcare professionals make when dealing with, uh, you know, a family where there's a dying, someone dying? Mm-hmm. <sighs> That's a, a, a tough question. Um, I guess um, I, I'll try to answer that in, in this way. I'm going to actually share with you a, a, a quote that comes from an educator whose name is Parker Palmer okay. and um, whose work we use in our project. And he talks about professionals um, sometimes that 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 professional training um, sometimes teaches uh, professionals to learn about the world as if it is a world they do not themselves inhabit. Mm-hmm. And I think applied to when you're working especially with families and kids around grief and loss and chronic illness and life-threatening illness and the potential of death, that that quote, it makes even more sense than it does in all other parts of life. Um, and so to answer your question, what's the biggest mistake professionals make, I would say the biggest mistake comes from something we're actually taught to do, which is to distance ourselves in ways that I'm not sure are particularly helpful to uh, families, but, but furthermore, I'm not sure they're particularly helpful to us our, ourselves, that we distance ourselves when we're helping families as if kids and families live in a different universe than we do. And it's not true. Uh, and therefore, it, it, from, a, from a learning and, and, and knowledge perspective, it's not a good way to, to, to learn things. Mm-hmm. I also think it creates a little fear because I, sometimes I get the feeling that people, when Heidi and I talk about the show to, to healthcare professionals or whatever, if they're not if, if they're not into the grief and loss area or mm-hmm. whatever, uh, all of a sudden they're like, oh, I can't. How can you work in that area or something? As though it yeah. wasn't an area of their life. Exactly, as, as if it's an area they don't know something about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> from their own lives and from yeah, from their professional and personal lives. Yeah, very interesting. Right, I, because the, the the reality is most you know. If we live to old age, we're going to have a family member die. We're all yeah. going to experience death, and we're all going to be impacted. And we will by all death. have friends and relatives. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. there's no way around it. That's mm-hmm. that's part of the life cycle. Yeah. So it's going to happen. Um, so we were talking on break a little bit, Mom, about as you know about um, something that David wrote seven or eight years ago, and we were talking earlier about it on continuing bonds. And it's ironic that he wrote it then because it's a big topic nowadays. 
Yeah, uh, you know, because remember the Kubler-Ross model for everybody was anger, denial, depression, acceptance. And Heidi and I have talked about it before. That, that acceptance was really for people who were dying, uh, trying to accept their own death was what mm-hmm. she meant it for, mm-hmm. not acceptance that the person's dead and that's mm-hmm. it and we're going to, what did they say, closure is for bank accounts, Heidi, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking that. Look, I'm tra- Robert Niemeyer, who is the uh, editor for Death Studies, says, Closure is for love is for bank accounts, not love accounts. Mm-hmm. And I love that. Mm-hmm. It is so mm-hmm. true. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to read this um, part of the article that you wrote, David, um, about your mother's death, and then we could talk a little bit about it. Um, basically, it says, I believe concepts like saying goodbye, finding closure, and moving on become stumbling blocks. I knew I needed to say goodbye in one sense, but in a more important sense, what I needed most was help in saying hello. Rather than severing a bond, I needed permission to nurture, strengthen, and deepen the connection to my mother. When I could say goodbye to my grief without saying goodbye to my mom, I was free to love more fully in the present. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah, it's wonderful. That, I think, is so true. Mm-hmm. And so you came to that realization how, how when? Well, that's something I wrote seven or eight years ago, and, mm-hmm. and one of the things that, that those of us that have had losses when we are children know very well if they are losses that are worth their salt if they are big losses they they last a lifetime that's not to say that life doesn't um go on or that we don't find a happiness in our lives and build build a, a good life after a major major loss but I wrote that seven years ago uh, at the age of, uh, I don't know, 48, mm-hmm. uh, and that's when um, when some of these things were coming together for me. I mean, they've, they've come to get what, and I think actually that fits with what we now understand about about the grief of children and as they grow up to become young adults and adults, which is that children grieve developmentally. So that if children, if for a child that loses a parent, um, what they need help with as they grow through their lives is ways of encountering and re-encountering that loss and making meaning of that loss in a framework that fully understands that this will keep going on indefinitely, which, is, which again, is not to say that one's life is in a mess indefinitely. Right. It's just to say that the meaning-making process keeps going on. Right. And you um, continue to miss them for different reasons. I mean, I'm, I'm working on a longitudinal study right now, as you know, and I've been working with the same kids for five years that lost firefighters in the World Trade Center. Yes. I mean, some of them graduated from high school this yes. year, and what they miss is their father wasn't there. Right, exactly. And what we need, what children need around them, even if, even if the rest of the family system has, has transformed to something else, which is another part of this, because sometimes spouses get ready to take on a new spouse, for example, before a, whereas a child never takes on a new parent. That you might take on a step parent, mm-hmm. but you don't replace a parent that's died. And so, for kids, they they need a they need a, a loving environment around them, so that when they reach graduation, there are folks around them saying that fully understand why they're missing dad at graduation, Mm -hmm. why they are longing to be like other kids at that time. And as long as that framework is around them, they, I think, have a much better potential to kind of work in a healthy way on the loss 
throughout their lives. Yeah, there becomes, when I hear you talk about that, there's a really richness about it, about exploring your life in this way. I love your writing later on, and I know a lot of our audience journal, and what a great thing to do, and the richness of your life exploring it. Some people don't have anything happen, and they don't explore. So Mm -hmm. there is a richness about it. And it's also interesting because sometimes kids can make those connections for themselves and say, you know, I feel sad today because Daddy's not here. And sometimes kids will act out and get all upset, and it's up to the, the parents need to come in and say, you know what, it's it's a hard day today. Your dad's you're graduating, and it's wonderful, and I wish Daddy was here to see this. And then the kids are able to say, maybe that's why I'm so sad. I, I totally agree with that, Heidi. That that that's that's the side of the environment around kids. That kids are not always going to make those connections, mm-hmm. and to have have um, parents that that. And, and family members and close people that are close to that kid being able to say, I wish Daddy could be here, which is actually a beautiful way of saying it because it's not could be here to see you. It's a beautiful way of saying it because it's not even telling that child that you're you're sad because you're this is the this is a time your father uh, you know you wish your father were here. Right. It's not an interpretation. Mm-hmm. It's just simply give. It's saying I I wish I wish Daddy were here to see this, and it gives permission for that child if that's what the connection is for them to I like that. feel free exploring that. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great idea for our folks out there. Good thoughts. Yeah. Um, what about? Can you two talk a little bit about siblings? I was just thinking, Mom, I was just thinking that because I was thinking the biggest thing I hear from siblings, surviving mm-hmm. siblings, is, you know, when my sibling was dying, yeah. I was overlooked and unacknowledged and ignored, and all the attention yeah. went to my sibling that was sick and dying, and nothing went to me. Yeah. Well, you know, it's 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 a very, very, very important <clears throat> point, and it's, I think, just kind of a reflective, reflective of... Um, just just how much are is our healthcare system and our system of of care professional caregivers capable of responding to to all of what is needed and what i mean by that is that um you know slowly and gradually the healthcare system is getting a little bit better at responding to families in these situations and siblings are kind of like the outliers they're the invisible people just as you said Heidi because they don't they're they're not always there as the parents are and so it's kind of like uh, they 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 become uh, i mean they they are not the first group that's looked at and they sh- and they should be right up there with everybody else and it's a question i think of resources and of of will in the healthcare system, because most healthcare professionals, any healthcare professional that works with families, is fully aware that siblings suffer in this way. It's a question of whether the system is willing and able to do something about it and to provide some resources in that direction. Right, and I know that Betty Davies out of UCSF has got a program called Super Sibs, yes, which really focuses on the siblings. Um, yes. and it's, a, it's a wonderful program. And we'll be having her on the show, right, Hyde? Right. Well, she's going to be on in July. But, Mom, do you remember when Elizabeth DeVita Rayburn was on? Her brother was the boy in the bubble, and he died um, 20 years ago, 20-plus years ago. And at that time, you know, she she grew up in the hospital because he lived in the bubble for mm-hmm. 8 to 10 years, and she said she was completely overlooked mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. invisible mm-hmm. and almost lost her voice. Mm. Um, for years and years, mm-hmm. and it was interesting mm-hmm. hearing her experience. Yeah, and she even ended up working in the hospital after he died. Remember Heidi doing yes. 
involved so, in, you know, some work as a teenager there. So, yeah, it's very interesting how the, the siblings maybe become a part of the system in a way, but not in a way where they're able to speak. Mm-hmm. They're kind of just seen. Mm-hmm. And there's another part, I think, of this that, that's important with siblings, which is that in addition to recognizing that they've been invisible for so long, it's it's it's... There's a challenge of recognizing the ways in which they are in pain. There's also an equal challenge to recognize the strengths that they develop by virtue of being siblings of kids that are dying. That, that's you know, a we good tend point. to look at this at the sad part of it and the negative part of it, but mm-hmm. um, siblings who uh, of kids that die often grow up, uh, as as uh, as is true for. Few people on this <laughs> on this phone. We 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 grow up. We grow up. Uh, grow up to to become caregivers, and and that's not a bad thing. But it's but it's it but it's it meet, But there needs, as you are both saying, there needs to be um, the attention given to that experience when kids are young, so that it's not a lonely or depriving or. You know, there's something inherent in what families go through where it's probably not realistic to think, for example, in a family with a kid that's sick for a long time, you're not going to have a sibling not experience really what it means to to kind of not be the focus of attention if there's a chronically ill child. But if you have a way of them understanding what that means, it doesn't represent that they're any less loved, and furthermore, mom and dad will give you special attention at this time and that time, and there's help here and there's this support group here, then then they have a way, I think, of 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 pulling through all that in a way that doesn't have to have really terribly deleterious, you know, negative uh, And impact. I love that you're bringing that up, David, because like you said, Kids have, they develop strength and resilience. And I, I, on both articles that I've written on sibling loss, I put in a piece about kids that have had siblings die and that they're more, often more empathic. Mm-hmm. They appreciate life, you know, more. They're mm-hmm. more mature often. Mm-hmm. They have I a also, lot of I also strength. think, Heidi, it affects family dynamics. I think that, this, that there can be some real closeness in the family where the siblings really realize you know, the meaning. Just kind of wanted to recapture a few things that we've been talking about because I really think they've been so marvelous. And um, one of them is the idea that um, healthcare providers, you know, it's not an alien thing, loss, and and uh, the program that David Browning's working with and having healthcare professionals realize their own experiences and be able to express them and use them and uh, with families. I think that is a great thing. And then the ideas about uh, how to help kids and, you know, how to Heidi was bringing that up, how to to um, be able to talk to kids about you must be missing your mom at Christmas or, you know, graduation or whatever, and being able to state that for kids. Is, is that kind of what you were saying, Heidi? Well, or the parents stating, like David said themselves, I miss Joey today, or I wish Joey was here to see your soccer game or to see you graduate today. Yeah. Um, putting it out in the air for, for the family. I think those are important points. And I wanted to ask uh, David if there are any other points for families out there who who have lost loved ones that he might, uh, particularly lost kids that he might have comment on or a sibling. Um, I, I don't know that I have any really concrete advice other than to say that um, don't don't accept anybody else's um, ground rules, or or don't ex- don't accept anybody else's rules about what it is that's supposed to be happening. You know, grief unfolds in such um, unique ways uh, in families and in, and also in individuals that we that that 
that families need, people need to feel comfortable going through the process that they need to, need to go through. And I know in support groups like the Compassionate Friends, when it's about the loss of a child, that that's really kind of a basic uh, a premise that, yes, there may be certain things that we all know, like holidays tend to be hard times, et cetera, et cetera. But, but the, the, the more fundamental message, I believe, is that um, we're, we're here to, to create a, a loving environment around you to for going through what you need to go through, and we understand that that uh, this year it might be uh, you might feel like things are going feeling pretty good, and it might be five or six or ten or fifteen years from now that the loss hits you in a different kind of way, and you come back and talk to us some more then. And I think the you know it, 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 to the extent that people can can surround themselves with that kind of thinking, uh, it, it just allows things to unfold in the ways that they need to. And then, of course, part of it is, is having having enough loving resources around, whether in the form of community or family or professional helpers, to, to kind of uh, support people along the way. Yeah, and I, uh, we don't have too much time to explore this, but I wanted to explore in terms of that a sudden death, you know, like our son was killed outright, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and we never ever had any support beyond that. Has that right. changed? Well, not, I mean, that's, that's sort of like I was saying before about um, siblings that it's, it's, at, it's on the, it's, in the pediatric palliative care world, it's beginning to change, but, but what we've, what, what the focus went to first was kids with chronic illness, I mean with life-threatening illness and conditions that last a long time, but it's, it's increasingly recognized um, that um, sudden death uh, is, in some ways, it's, 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 it's an even greater need because it, for exactly the reason you said, Gloria, that people are, tend to be invisible to the healthcare system, but they're usually not entirely invisible. They usually show up at the emergency room or somewhere. And again, I think it's a question of both recognizing that those those families have a, a bunch of needs that start at that moment uh, that the healthcare system can be helpful with, um, and, and then also trying to trying to fashion um, some of the options that are available to families in ways that are um, flexible. Because the the problem, of course, is that all different families. Are gonna, people respond to different things. Some people go to support groups. Some people go to counselors. Some people talk to other parents. And and for for an, a response to be effective, it has to be kind of flexible. Yeah, um, I don't. You didn't get any kind of outreach, did you, Heidi? Outreach? No, no, absolutely yeah. not. Not at all. It just kind of ends. Very right. Difficult. And I've heard that with families that have hospices and have a large community around them of healthcare professionals, it's very difficult once the person dies, and not only. Do they lose someone they love, but they lose all these people around them that were there for them, and all of a sudden mm-hmm. they're alone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love yep. what David said about grief unfolds in unique ways. I think that is so true. That is such a great way of stating it. Um, and I'd like to say one more thing. We talked a lot about sibling loss today, and I just wanted to say from a brief sibling perspective, my own, is that, that the death of my brother defined my life, but in no way did it destroy my life. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. families get nervous that, you know, having a family member die is going to in some way permanently destroy their children mm-hmm. forever, and it, I, mm-hmm. it won't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, as a parent, you're so uh, disrotten out of it that, that you really do. I, you know, you, I wasn't a very good parent for a year or two, mm-hmm. you know, or maybe even more. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just kind of out of it. So I think you do worry about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, Heidi, I think that's, that, that point is, is so important for, for all of your listeners and all of us 
to, to hear because there is a way, I think it, it's, it's partly cultural, that we, we think of especially tragic losses, the death of a child, uh, whether it's a sudden death or just any kind of death of a child because it's so hard to, hard, hard to take in, that we, we, we think of that kind of um, suffering that, that, that families go through as something that's just just has to be the, the most horrific thing in the world. But uh, unfortunately, as, as all of us who have experienced loss know, life involves suffering. Right. And, and the greatest, some of the greatest uh, directions that people take in life have to do with weathering a period of suffering. And, and really what we're talking about is making sure people have enough support to weather the suffering in positive ways so that they're not done in by it. That's a wonderful note to close the show on, David, and thank you so much for being on the show. It's been wonderful having David Browning on. My pleasure. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com. 